That was fantastic, guys. More to come. Riveting light shows and exciting, catchy tunes and even really cool sound effects when Isaiah gets pulled out of the pit. That was fantastic, you guys. <laughs> I think it'd be cool if you just stayed up here, too. I mean, that'd be all right. Just hang out with me up here. What do you think? Guys, thanks again. One more round for our kids. Yeah, yeah. Very fun. Listen, as we get started this morning, uh, there are certain towns, certain places, certain cities that have reputations uh, about themselves. So, you know, if I told you that uh, I were from Los Angeles, for example, uh, you might uh, think that I would be up here talking to you in a pair of really skinny jeans and a really tight, deep V-neck t-shirt. Um, my, uh, my breakfasts would probably be like strawberry and kale smoothies with a shot of wheatgrass or something like that. That's the, the LA profile. Um, if I said that I was from Abilene, Texas, uh, you, you might expect some kind of an accent, right? Uh, you, you'd expect me to be a good old boy with solid values that drives a used pickup truck and never ever misses an episode of Duck Dynasty. Well, it was Robertson's. Um, I don't know, across the pond maybe, uh, let's go to an international city like Rome. Uh, you might think that I had a deep appreciation of culture, a love for fine espresso. I probably speak at least one romantic language and drive a Fiat, a really cool one. Um, I do drive one of those. That was kind of a little fun inside joke. Hi, Em. You okay, babe? You did great on your solo. I'm sure she'll be fine wherever it is that she's going, whatever place that she's headed to. But, uh, how about another town? How about the town Ferguson, Missouri, if I said that town? I mean, there's a lightning rod, isn't it? I mean, a town that's been in the news a lot lately, that's uh, in many ways been in uh, the national spotlight, you know, racial tension and questions about uh, injustice or potential injustice and a whole lot of other social complications, a complicated town in Ferguson. And, and even our own cities and towns here within the Mahoning Valley carry certain reputations about them. I mean, Youngstown is kind of known as the blue-collar, gritty, you know, producer of... Uh, guys that love Halushki and high school football, and then, uh, you know, then you've got like the, the preppy suburbs like Canfield and Poland that have a whole lot of other associations attached to them. I've heard these things. You probably have too. And I wonder uh, what associations that you make when you hear the town Bethlehem. Uh, the town Bethlehem. What kind of mental images come to your mind? The little town of Bethlehem that so often adorns the lyrics to our Christmas carols, what do we think about uh, when we hear that town? Funny little side note, I, was, uh, I had Topher with me a little bit this week, he wasn't feeling well, and uh, I showed him this picture of Bethlehem, we were talking about what we were going to do on Sunday, and he looked at me and he said, that's Bethlehem, that? I thought it'd be more like Texas. So, uh, you know, even my seven-year-old had some kind of idea of what he thought Bethlehem was or wasn't. We, we all tend to bring those assumptions to the table. But this morning, as we, we continue along in our series, Christmas Before the Manger, where we're looking at uh, kind of keynote Old Testament passages and what they have to say about the Christmas story and, and God's story and our story, uh, we come to the prophet Micah. And uh, Micah's a guy who's going to tell us what and how we really ought to be thinking uh, when we hear the town Bethlehem, a prophet who's going to help to shape our mindset and give us the best and most biblical picture of, of what Bethlehem is and, and really why it's significant in all 
And what we're going to see from Micah chapter 5 is that the gifts that we really need this Christmas come from Bethlehem, this little town. The Grinch got it right, uh, I think, when he pondered and puzzled. Maybe, maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. And uh, he did get it right because the gifts that we need this Christmas really don't come from Macy's or uh, Amazon.com or Toys R Us or even Family Christian Store, dare I say. Uh, the gifts that we really need this Christmas season come from Bethlehem. But, uh, but what are they? I mean, what are those gifts? I mean, I know it's like a quaint little part of the Christmas story, but what could this tiny ancient little city possibly offer to us very well-adjusted, technologically savvy modern people? I mean, what, what's so special about Bethlehem? And, and how do we connect into those gifts? How do we know them? How do we receive them? So these are some of the questions that we're going to be asking of the text as we come to it this morning. So why don't we pray together, and then we'll get rolling. Father, thank you very much for the chance to be together this morning, uh, especially this time of the year. It's just good to be together. And so I ask that our time would be encouraging and challenging and, and ultimately pleasing to you. I ask that you'd open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the wonders and the beauty of your word. We ask in Jesus' good name, amen. All right, so go ahead and meet me in your Bibles in the book of Micah. I already mentioned uh, this. Micah is in the Old Testament. And uh, if you need help finding it, you'll find it just before the book of Nahum, which is probably not all that much help. Uh, listen, just pick up your pew Bible uh, and turn to page 778. That'll get you there too. Page 778 of your pew Bible, or if you want to rifle through Micah, uh, it's about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the entire Bible. It's part of a group of books called the Minor Prophets, called Minor not because uh, they're not as substantial or important, but just because of their length. So this is part of a, a group of shorter prophetic books, 778 in the Pew Bible, Micah 1, excuse me, 5, 1 to 5. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire passage for you, and then we're going to dive into to what these gifts are that come to Bethlehem and from Bethlehem. Verse 1, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, one who's coming forth of old from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand... And shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is God's word. So uh, here in chapter 5, Micah starts by essentially calling the people to attention. That little word now that starts verse 1 should not be overlooked. Now muster your troops. This would, uh, parents, be like the difference between you telling your kid, pick up your room, and pick up your room now, right? There's a difference. There's a force that comes with that word now. And so Micah's telling these people uh, how immediate and imminent uh, distress is coming their way. Get yourselves ready. Be prepared. The enemy is coming, and when they come, they're going to hit you hard. He says they're even going to strike your king, your judge, your leader on the cheek. They're going to totally humiliate you. Uh, verse 2, however, turns a little corner, uh, whereas verse 1 begins now, verse 2 begins, but, and with that little word, with that little contrast and turn, we're going to see the first gift 
that comes from Bethlehem. Specifically, we need the gift of Bethlehem's insignificance. One of the things that makes Bethlehem so significant to this story, so significant to the Christmas story, so significant to your story is the fact of its very insignificance. Look at it with me, verse 2 again. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, just another word for Bethlehem there is Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you is going to come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now you might say, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. I mean, the king, the king doesn't reign in Jerusalem. The president doesn't govern from Paducah. I mean, the, the king reigns from Jerusalem, right? From the city, from the big place, the significant place, right? I mean, Bethlehem literally is not even on the map, not named among the clans of Judah. That's the place? Yes, God says, this place of insignificance and weakness, this place lacking any kind of prestige or pedigree, this is the place, and this insignificance is actually a great gift. The question, of course, is why? And uh, we'll look at two reasons today, at least two, but we'll look at two today. First, Bethlehem's insignificance crushes our sinful pride. That insignificance will, will, will pull out the rug from underneath all of our human boasting, all of our own vain attempts to save ourselves, that insignificance pulls out the rug from underneath of that sinful pride. I want you to think about it and frame it in kind of the broader context of Scripture. Think about it this way. I mean, why does God always seem to do this? I mean, why does He choose an insecure, babbling murderer in Moses to be His representative to Pharaoh? Why does He do that? Why does he take Gideon's army and intentionally whittle it down to a minuscule number of hundreds to face a vaunted army of tens of thousands? Why does he choose a no-name, last-born shepherd boy in King David to be the ideal king for all of Israel? And why does he choose to send the eternal son of glory to a broken world to be born in an animal trough and to die on a criminal's cross? Why does... See, do things like this. Why Bethlehem? Well, because it, it totally levels our sinful pride. The insignificant places and people and scenarios that God uses to accomplish His glorious purposes are the fire that melts away our human boasting. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He shows what's weak in the world to shame the strong what is low and despised in the world, so that, here it is, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Gang, this is, this is the gospel in the story of Bethlehem. Salvation comes from the place of weakness. A poor carpenter in his early 30s who's running around town claiming to be God that's ultimately crucified, killed as a criminal, this is how we're saved? That's absurd. And it is. And God says the same cross that's a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others is the power of God to those whom he calls. As a matter of fact, that's exactly how that passage in 1 Corinthians 2 finishes. Paul says, let the one who boasts, so if there's going to be boasting, let that person boast in the Lord, which is, is the other side of the coin, you see. Because inasmuch as Bethlehem's insignificant crushes our sinful pride, it also showcases the saving power of God. 
God's saving power is what really shines as he uses these people in places of insignificance. Peek at it again in, in Micah 2 there. Look down the middle of verse 2. Did you pick this up when I read it? It says, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be the ruler in Israel. Now, that's interesting. From you shall come forth for me, meaning God. This is a stark and important reminder for us to remember that salvation is God's business. It is all for and through and to and because of Him. Remember back in verse 1 just how bleak this picture is that, that Micah was painting? I mean, if we're anywhere in this story, we are the hopeless ones. I mean, we, we, are, we, are in, we are in for it. The enemy is coming. Even our king, whatever or whoever that is, is not capable of saving us. Even he will be struck down. We are doomed unless, unless, of course, God does something about it and provides the saving power that we really need. And thankfully, in Christ, he has. This is the saving power of God on display through the insignificant means of places like Bethlehem. The year was uh, 1850, I think, yeah, 1850, and a 16-year-old boy kind of wandered in uh, accidentally or providentially, as it would turn out to be, to a, a Methodist church in Chester, Chester, England. And uh, this boy wasn't his church. He was on his way to his church, and there was a bad snowstorm. He didn't want to walk through the rest of it, so he just kind of marched into this place. And interestingly enough, because of that same snowstorm, the pastor, the preacher, couldn't fill the pulpit. He couldn't get there in time. And so in his place, uh, an unknown, unschooled, insignificant layperson just kind of came up to the, to the pulpit to, to give it his best shot. And this boy would later describe him as a, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something who managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so until he was at the end of his tether. Um, in other words, that sermon was not going to catch a million hits on YouTube. It was not a very good sermon. However, through the insignificant preaching of that insignificant layperson, that, that teenage boy was converted that day, became a Christian. And uh, that boy was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Those of you that know anything about church history know that uh, Spurgeon, ironically, later became known as the Prince of Preachers and uh, performed and held one of the most uh, influential ministries over the last couple of hundred years. That just illustrates the point that we really need, need the gift of Bethlehem's insignificance because our pride needs to be checked up. Our boasting should be redirected, and, and we ought to be boasting in the Lord, and perhaps most of all, and, and listen to this, we need the gift of Bethlehem's insignificance because if Jesus can be born in Bethlehem, then maybe, just maybe, he can be born in us. If, if Jesus can be born in Bethlehem and God can use Bethlehem, then maybe he can use in all of our insignificance as we feel that so often in this life, even on our best day, maybe he can use us. Two other gifts uh, that we need to receive from Bethlehem this Christmas. The next, we need the gift of Bethlehem's enduring promise. This passage in Micah 5 is like a portrait of a beautiful promise, a promise that we need to know and cling to uh, even today. Longtime pastor and author Dale Ralph Davis calls this passage an ancient, defiant, unbreakable promise. I love that. I mean, that's a little bold, but a defiant promise. And I'm so thankful that God's promises are defiant in a day and age uh, where the world sometimes laughs at these things, where 
uh, in a day and age where, where God's promises are defiant even to our own doubts, right? Our own fears, our own unbelief. God's promises are sure in that setting. And as we look at this particular promise from Bethlehem, we need to know a couple of things about it. The first is that this promise both connects back and it points forward. This promise in Micah 5, this enduring promise, looks both to the past and to the future. What do we mean by that? Verse 2, uh, if you, you check out the end of verse 2 there, finishes up with some really interesting commentary on this king that's going to come. It says, From you shall come forth one whose coming is from old, from ancient days. Ancient days. Now, uh, some commentators say that this is speaking about the eternality of Jesus, so the fact that he, he was not created ever, that he's always existed from eternity past. And while that's true, theologically, this passage points back to a different place. And the place it points back to is the place we've been talking about all morning, is Bethlehem. Now, what's so significant about that? Back in 1 Samuel 16, God tells this prophet named Samuel, I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. We know that son to be David. So Bethlehem is literally David's town, the city of David. And, and this is significant because Micah 5 connects us back to God's promises to David, promises that he made to, to rule and to reign and to lead his people through one of David's sons. So in other words, Bethlehem is a city that shouts to us, God doesn't forget his promises, ever. So the promise points back, but it's also pointing forward, right? It reminds us of the, the David that's coming here. Because even though David was dead, God's promise to David wasn't. It was very much alive. Another David was coming. In fact, a better David was coming. This is where we fast forward to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So here's the connection, right, between past and, and future. It's connecting all in Jesus. But there's a twist because the Jesus that we see here in Matthew 2 is not just any king. He was, he was the king. He is the king, God himself. This is fascinating to me. You notice that the wise men not only identify Jesus as the king, which they do, but they also come to do something. What do they come to do? Did you catch it? They came to worship him. Now you might say, well, only God is worthy of worship. That's right. There it is. And that is precisely the point. Which leads us to another great, great blessing about this enduring promise here. This sustaining promise also gives us hope in, in the middle of our distress. God's sustaining promise, interestingly, also sustains us when the going gets tough. Verse 3 is, um, is a confusing verse to me. I'll be real honest. It's, it's kind of a surprise, and it's a little confusing. You might think that once we're past the doom and gloom of verse 1, uh, you know, the, the enemy's coming now, right? Get ready. But Messiah is coming to make everything right. You, you'd think we've kind of turned the corner on that. But this is, this is so surprising to me. Look at what it says. Therefore, he shall give them up. He, meaning God, uh, shall give them, meaning Israel, up. Wasn't salvation coming? I mean, wasn't Messiah coming? You think they'd skip right down to verses 4 and 5. But, but this is a really good reminder for us of the, the now and not yet element of this passage and also, truthfully, of the Christian life as a whole. 
Because as Christians, we really live with a foot in two worlds. You know, on one hand, our life is hid with Christ in heaven, right? We are, we are seated with him. We're given every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, and then on the other side, though, we live with a foot in the brokenness and the sin-laden nature of this world. On, on the other foot, we live in a world where we lose the people we love before we're ready to lose them. We, we live in a world where we speak unkind words and harmful words to each other, sometimes to the people that we love the most and hurt them. We, on the other foot, our, our aging parents lose their memories to terrible diseases like Alzheimer's or they get cancer or, or heart disease. And so how do we hope in the middle of this kind of straddling of the fences? The reason that we can hope and the way that we can hope is because of God's sustaining promise. You also may be picked up by the fact that none of this is out of God's control. He is working and willing and ordaining all of this because in context, after hundreds and hundreds of years of unrepentant sin and idolatry and rebellion, God is bringing judgment on his people because he's not only sovereign, he's not only in control of all things, he's also just. And because he's just, as a good God, he rights wrongs. He makes wrongs right and brings justice. Of course, the great hope of Messiah that we're talking about in this passage and the great twist of the gospel is that Jesus is actually the one that stands in our place and takes the judgment that belongs to us. Where David delivered God's people from the Philistines, Jesus delivers his people from an enemy far worse than uh, invading Philistines or Assyrians or Babylonians. He, He delivers us from ourselves, from our sin and the penalty that accompanies it. And that my friends, is the kind of promise that can give us hope in the middle of our distress because in Christ, God fulfills his enduring promises in ways far better than we could ever ask or imagine. While it's not a traditional Christmas movie, uh, the movie Hook, starring the late Robin Williams, is set at Christmas time. Maybe you've seen it. It's a fun little family movie that plays off the Peter Pan story. And in the movie, one of the side stories between Robin Williams' character, who plays kind of this grown-up version of Peter Pan, is the tension, the tense relationship between Peter and his son, Jack. And the reason that so much of that tension exists is because uh, Peter is always making and breaking promises to his son, Jack, always, throughout the movie. And uh, as a matter of fact, there's one scene where they're sitting in an airplane. You might remember this scene where he makes him another promise, And then he follows that up with, Jack, you know, my word is my bond. And Jack kind of under his breath defiantly says, yeah, junk bonds. God's promises are not junk bonds. They're not. They are everlasting and full of hope. And if you are tired of broken promises this Christmas, then look to Bethlehem. Look to the faithful promise keeper. Look to Jesus the ultimate fulfillment and the most tangible realization and validation of all of those promises. So we've got uh, the gifts so far of Bethlehem's insignificance, right, that we need to level our pride, to to redirect our boasting in God. We've got the gift of, of Bethlehem's enduring promise that sustains us, that gives us hope. But, uh, but there's one more gift. It's the last gift that we're going to open this morning. And those of you that are parents know that uh, the last gift is always the best gift, Right? I mean, you kind of orchestrate that with your kids. You you know, 25 years ago for me, it was uh, the Sega Genesis uh, gaming system. And uh, I got it. I mean, it was a great gift. We had spent a lot of hours on that thing. But the last gift is always the best. And the same thing is here in Micah 5. This is the piece de resistance, so to speak. The last gift from Bethlehem is, is really the big idea of this entire passage. The gift that we need more than any other 
this Christmas is the gift of Bethlehem's shepherd king. Jesus Christ, the shepherd king of Bethlehem, is really the greatest gift that we can attain and have and receive this Christmas. And uh, verses 4 to 5 paint this remarkable picture of the character and of the work of the coming shepherd king. I I want you to look at it again with me. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You can see it on your outline on the screen. Three aspects of of the person and work of Jesus. uh, His strength, his security, and peace. And we're going to look at uh, at each one just quickly here. First, the shepherd king is our strength. Because real strength, true strength, is only known and given by the shepherd king. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. How? In the strength of the Lord. And that's really the key, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is not leading from a position of human strength that that ultimately fails. I mean, we can only do so many push-ups. We can only hang in there so long before we we break down. He's not shepherding from human ingenuity, which uh, has a tendency to puff us up. He is leading, the passage says, in the strength of the Lord, a strength that surpasses, dare I say, uh, even ten Grinches plus two, as you know the story. Second, the shepherd king is our security. Jesus protects and provides for his people, for his flock. Again from verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock, and they shall dwell secure. I wonder if you see the the contrast there, the word play that Micah creates. In the original language, that that two-word phrase, dwell secure, is actually one word. It's the verb to sit. And so the, the verbal picture that Micah gives us here is that the shepherd king will stand and we will sit. As the the perfect shepherd, Jesus continually stands guard over us, offering us absolute and total security. Uh, This is personally the most convicting and and my favorite part of this passage, uh, because those of you that know me know that in my dark moments I can be a very insecure person. And uh, so this is absolutely liberating, absolutely liberating, because all the security that I really need and all the security that you really need is provided by this shepherd king. Because so much of our insecurity is is tied up in our desire to be accepted, accepted by our friends, accepted by our spouses, by our bosses, by our co-workers, by our children, accepted by ourselves. And Jesus makes us acceptable in the eyes of the one that we really need to be accepted by, that makes all the difference to our life. Jesus in his work actually makes us acceptable to God. The maker of heaven and earth, are you kidding? This is the acceptance that we have because we're under the care of the shepherd king? I need to think about that. You need to think about that the next time that you're anxious about whether or not your boss notices all the extra work you've been doing around the office. Think about that the next time your spouse passes over you and ignores you when you've been working so hard to gain their attention. Think about that the next time your children really don't acknowledge all of the work that you've been doing for them. Friends, we have to stop looking to our jobs and our spouses and our kids and our friends and our experiences to provide the kind of security that only Jesus can provide. One more point on this because I I think it's huge for us. Even in Canfield, we can be insecure, believe it or not. 
Author Jared Wilson, where uh, pastors and elders are reading a book right now by this guy, Jared Wilson, he says it this way, to be hidden with Christ in God. So in other words, if you're a Christian, your life is hid with Christ in God, then you are secu- as secure as Christ is. Again, to be hidden with Christ in God is to be as secure as Christ is. Well, what's more secure than Christ? Nothing. Nothing. And that is exactly the point. When we are in Christ, we're secure. We are safe. We are safer than any other place. You can trust Him. You can be vulnerable with Him. He won't take advantage of you. We are fully and completely accepted by God because and only because we are under the care and the watch of the shepherd king. Lastly, the shepherd king is our peace. The peace that we really need this Christmas is is found in the shepherd king, verse 5. It's right there. And he shall be their peace. You know, between uh, our parties and our gift exchanges and our work obligations and our personal obligations and lights that, uh, that blink when they should flicker and long lines at the stores and trips up and down 224 uh, that make you say things that you'd never want to say in church. I mean, it's really difficult sometimes to find peace around the holidays. And most of you know that my family were going through our first Christmas without my mom. And uh, to be totally honest and transparent, there are many moments uh, over the last three weeks where I would describe my life as everything but peaceful, straight away. But this is where we need to, to pay really close attention to what Micah is actually telling us about peace, especially as it relates to the shepherd king, because Peace, in addition to strength and security, aren't like cheap little prizes that Jesus just kind of dispenses whenever we need them. It's not like putting a quarter into a gumball machine and turning that goofy knob and out comes a little peace. It's, it's far deeper than that. Look again at verse 5. Put your eyes on the page. And he shall be their peace. You see it? Jesus not only gives us peace, He is our peace. Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our constant, enduring, unwavering, you can always count on it to be there because he isn't going anywhere kind of peace. And by his atoning life, death, and resurrection, he actually makes peace, Romans 5, between rebel sinners like us and God himself if we simply trust in him by faith and then demonstrate that trust by a life of joyful obedience. This is the kind of peace that we really need this Christmas, and this is the kind of peace that is like the undercurrent when there's no peace on top of the surface, the peace of the shepherd king. There's little doubt that throughout the remainder of the holiday season, you will hear the following question. What do you want for Christmas? We hear it all over the place. I mean, we, we ask each other as friends. We ask that question of our children. We hear it a lot from the, uh, the big guy in the cool red suit, and, uh, and truth be told, that's, that's all okay, more or less. I mean, it's, it's a fun part of Christmas. This is not a rant against the commercialization of Christmas. Uh, but what would bring me so much joy and encouragement is that if we left here this morning thinking less about what we want for Christmas and truthfully more about what we need, and what we really need, as we see from this passage in Micah 5, are the gifts that come from Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem is a place of great blessing. It's a place where the best gifts come from, the gift of insignificance, the gift of sustaining promises, and of course, the gift of the shepherd king himself, our strength and security and peace. And the way we open these things is, uh, in God's economy at least, is through an exercise, an ongoing exercise of faith and repentance. So, uh, so open them up. Enjoy them. Bask in them. And leave here this morning grateful for the remarkable gifts that God provides for us in and through and because of Jesus, the shepherd king. Why don't we pray? Father, how grateful we are that though undeserving, you have provided all of the gifts that we truly need around the holidays. We stand before you today a people who, like Israel in that time, really need to be shaking in our boots. Uh, This world is a scary place. We are scary people. And I'm amazed that even though you know everything about us, you still choose to love us because we are in Christ. And that is the key. And so I pray that uh, if there are those here this morning who aren't under the care of the shepherd king, that they would realize what a dangerous place that is to be, to be left all alone, to try to advocate for their own shortcomings before God. That is a, a terrible place to be. And yet you have provided the solution that we need. Uh, we don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it or deserve it. We don't have to merit it. In fact, we cannot. That's why the shepherd king is a gift. I pray that you would help those who are here in that position this morning as you awaken their hearts to the beauty of who Jesus is to confess to you their need to be saved, their need for the gifts that come from Bethlehem, their need to be under the care of the shepherd king. And I pray that today you would indeed awaken hearts to that truth for the very first time. And for those that stand under the care of the shepherd king, remind us of the strength and the security and the peace that we have that is unchanging and unwavering because the work of Christ is perfect and it's finished. We don't have to strain and strive that even in the midst of our emotional swings and so much sadness that there is a peace that passes beyond all human understanding and it is the peace that belongs to and comes from and is found in the Prince of Peace. Thank you for your kindness to us this morning, Lord, the chance to be together, to spend time in your word, to grow, to be challenged, and hopefully to be changed, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you sing this last song with us?